You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Lori Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, we hear about a proxy fight fit for the movies, find out the best ways to get investor feedback, and investigate exactly how well IROs are paid. It's Friday the 15th of May 2015, and I'm Laurie Havelock, and I'm joined by a familiar lineup of IR Magazine's finest. Tim Human, Condice de Montpetit, and Garnet Roach. Hello! Hello. That's very enthusiastic. Look at this. Uh, I feel like it's important to mention first off that um, the IR Magazine pub quiz team was once again victorious at the Barley Mo, just around the corner. Um, there weren't many tailored questions to our job or profession, sadly. Not many IR questions. Um, but our master of all things web, Katie, did get a clean sweep on the music round, which was very impressive. And I recommend you guys come next time. You were very missed. I was actually, I went to a different pub quiz uh, this Another week. Another pub quiz? Yeah, a rival pub quiz. Um, yeah, we weren't quite as successful as you guys. Uh, we came fourth. Um, but, too bad. Yeah, it was good fun. My favourite question was, um, which TV show does Snoop Dogg like to watch to uh, uh, inform him about historical events? Is that a real, a real question with a factual answer? Yes, it was one of the you know, last seven days uh, questions. Okay, what's the answer? <laughs> well, it's a TV show that um, features uh, famous historical families such as the Lannisters, <laughs> the Starks, Excellent. the Tyrells. Oh, wow. Excellent. And he'd said that this kept him abreast of all the, all the kind of historical knowledge he might have been missing out on before. Yes, apparently. Wow. Although, of course, Game of Thrones is um, based on a lot of true, um, you know, uh, royal families and, true and wars that were fought and things yep. like that. There's actually a good um, sort of six or seven minute TED talk, which is, uh, sorry, not, it's not really a talk. It's an animated video where it goes through the War of the Roses um, in, in England and compares how all of the characters match up with different Game of Thrones characters. That's quite good. I, was really, I, I knew that the, the, the infamous Red Wedding is a, some black part of Scottish history where someone got killed at a wedding banquet as well. It's all, there we go. Not just, not just about dragons, guys. Um, I don't think we can spend too long talking about this. And on the subject of being justly rewarded for good performance, uh, Condice yesterday went on a trip to hear uh, about the latest findings from recruitment agency, EMR, about how well IROs are paid. And should they be happy at the moment, Condice? Are they being well paid? Pretty much, pretty much. Um, yes, uh, recruitment agency EMR has released uh, the findings from its latest uh, IR salary survey. And uh, the last one dates back to 2012. And the first thing that strikes here is the clear improvement in market confidence. 66% of IROs have reported a salary increase this past year. So yes, I think they can be happy. And half the respondents said they were optimistic about the future of uh, the UK economy. Another important change is the increase in the number of candidates with a capital markets background. Half of IROs or aspiring IROs now come from either the buy side, the sell side, corporate broking or equity sales. And almost 60% of respondents have a financial qualification. Debbie Nathan from EMR noted that in general, the caliber of candidates coming into IR has been increasing and that matches the requirements of companies to upscale their IR teams. IR is definitely becoming more highly regarded and valued as a profession in its own right. So our survey showed that almost 70% of, of respondents see themselves as having a long-term career in IR. So whilst, you know, 10 years ago it was very much a stepping stone into something else, nowadays people are in it for the long term, um, which I think is very interesting. And, you know, that's probably because the remit of IR is widening 
um, and, and the roles expanding. Her colleague uh, Anastasia Pitas said another reflection of market confidence was the fact that a lot of um, IR heads were thinking of expanding their team, with 11% considering hiring someone dedicated solely to corporate access. So I've asked them if um, UK IR teams would be turning a bit more continental European, you know that uh, German ones, for example, commonly have 10 to 15 people on their IR teams. Yeah, I don't think it will ever get to the point where it needs to be so big, but I think the clients, a couple of clients we've spoken to, Tech have said that, you know, rather than pay independent um, corporate access houses, um, you know, £20,000 for a two-week roadshow, it makes, you know, more sense to have someone in-house who will, can, you know, be an investor relations, um, investor access expert and will be, you know, their, their job will be to monitor who's buying their peers, who hasn't yet, you know, been interested in them. What are the different pools of capital around the world? Debbie Nathan also pointed out that the very big funds sometimes have 10 portfolio managers focusing on one sector. So once one has said no to a meeting, how do you go about tapping the other nine? And actually, how do you even know about the, about the other nine people you, can, you want to, to have a meeting with? So uh, that's where having an in-house corporate access specialist working out who's who inside a fund um, can come in handy. Another interesting thing is that a lot of candidates apparently want to go to special situation firms, for example, one who's planning to go public or uh, one with a liquidity event in the next few years or going through a lot of, lots of change or transformation. I think that's a reflection of the times that we've just been through. Um, you know, difficult financial markets, people are very experienced in certain kind of areas of capital raisings or uh, board changes, restructuring of, of debt. Um, so there seems to be um, some uh, some degree of interest in, in moving to a firm which has, you know, quite a lot of kind of corporate activity in the pipeline, um, you know, which makes for an exciting IR career, if not a bit risky. And on a final note, IR is apparently still a great profession to work in. 67% said they were either satisfied or very satisfied with their current role. Compensation remains competitive. Almost half of IR heads earn a basic salary between 90,000 and 130,000 pounds, and an additional 30% earn even more than that. Wow. Um, did the report cover um, the uh, pay brackets for um, IR journalists? No, I don't <laughs> think anybody wants to know about that. <laughs> Depressing reading, I think, sadly. That does sound like they should be happy. And I'm re- it's quite interesting to hear how specialised roles are becoming. And especially in these big teams, you have IROs dedicated to such specific roles. Is that something, I don't know, is that something you guys are aware of as well? Well, I think um, in terms of corporate access specifically, there's obviously going to be a lot of changes coming up um, with how that works. Um, regulation obviously is going to have a big impact over the coming months and years. And so it's definitely something that IROs will be aware of. Well, that leads quite nicely on, I think, to what Garnet's going to tell us about, which is getting some tips on how to get the best investor feedback. But I think particularly um, you were speaking to someone from a corporate access department yourself. I spoke to a broker who works in the corporate access team um, who preferred to remain anonymous. Um, I also spoke to Michael Houghton from tech startup Engage, as well as the company's latest sign-up, Schroeder's. And Rodney Liu, who's the head of IR at Taiwan-based Delta Electronics, who offered some interesting points on how he gets investor feedback for the board. So the broker told me that in her view, it's, in, it's actually in the bank's interest to make the feedback that they offer to IROs as in-depth as possible. And they try to offer insights into whether the investor is likely to buy or sell stock. 
But other themes also come out of the feedback that they receive. That can cover anything from thoughts on the C-suite's presenting style to whether the story is understood well enough in a particular region and the company might actually need to do a roadshow. And so they really try to offer a range of thoughts from investors. But she did point out that that's actually becoming increasingly difficult, especially in certain areas, with a number of large institutions such as BlackRock, Allianz and First Eagle, to name just a few of them, adopting a no-feedback policy. And this, she says, is because institutions are worried about the way in which brokers might use that information to their own advantage. And are there some ways you can get around that? Well, one option, um, and this is something that the broker that I spoke to said, is that in a number of those kind of situations, IROs will have to go directly to the institution to get feedback because obviously they don't want to go through the broker. Um, But that's one of the issues that Michael Houghton is actually trying to address with Engage. And so using his online platform, feedback actually goes directly between the company and the institution. And so Engage doesn't see it at all. And so this was one of the areas that was actually attractive to Schroeder's um, and something that they commented on, as was the two-way feedback um, that Engage is also trying to institute. What do you mean by two-way feedback? How does that work? So basically, at the moment, feedback after a roadshow or a meeting goes from the investor to the company. But Engage is trying to get companies to also rate the meetings that they have with investors. So they want comments on whether the institution was on time, whether the person that came along from the investor was senior enough, for example. He said that there's been a number of complaints where a CEO might turn up for a meeting and and the person giving the presentation just seems too junior. So those are the kind of things that he said could then be used to improve investor targeting. So they could say to a company, you know, look how well rated this institution is among your peers, for example. The way that they're trying to do this, obviously, to streamline the way that feedback is collected and also to minimise the time that it takes to offer feedback is by using as many closed-ended questions as possible, which also makes it much easier to collect data. And so you can, using this data, you can look at the difference between long-only and long-short investors or between people based in the US and the UK and how that has varied year on year. And that's something that you can't do with a PDF just containing open-ended comments from the point of view of doing some of that work yourself what kind of steps could you do you know without the help of another company maybe so that's what I was talking to Rodney Liu about and so he explained to me that the company first started requesting these formal feedback letters in 2010 when one of the big investors voiced a differing opinion to the board on the company's dividend And so what he wanted to do was kind of formalise that opinion. And so he asked them to write a letter to the board, um, which also was seen by the chairman and the CEO. And that kind of initiated a formal discussion about these opinions. So since then, a number of investors have written to senior management on a huge range of issues, varying from investment strategy to succession plans and corporate governance practices. And in all but one case, the board's plans have actually mirrored the feedback from these institutions. Uh, Surely that means that there's a bit less reliance on brokers then, in that instance. I I think that what people are doing is using more of a mix and match approach to getting investor feedback. Um, But brokers still have a very big role to play. And as the broker that I spoke to pointed out, brokers will always be speaking to more investors than the IRO ever could. And as she said... If your broker is a good and impartial broker, they'll be able to offer advice on to help you with your targeting. But if they're not really willing to give that information, then perhaps they're simply not the right broker for you and you need to look elsewhere. Some people might also say that there's no such thing as an impartial broker. That may be true. <laughs> <laughs> 
reminds me of a comment from a, a very senior IRO um, who said that um, good brokers were absolutely irreplaceable, but uh, she also had a, a large list of very bad ones who, I quote, should be hanged. Oh, it's quite an extreme reaction, but, you know, would, would make sure you're only getting a, the perfect list there. Even for the cutthroat world of um, investment banking, that sounds a bit harsh. Absolutely. Well, from one bloody conflict in the investment banking world to another, Tim, uh, you've been looking at a, a big proxy fight that's come to a conclusion this week. Could you tell us a bit more? What, 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 who are the players and who are the combatants? Yes, as you mentioned, a big proxy fight came to a conclusion this week in the US. Uh, DuPont defeated a proposal by veteran activist Nelson Peltz to put four directors on the board, including himself. And so that obviously didn't work out so well for him as I may have read elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) No, it didn't. Um, According to media reports, it was a very dramatic end to the proxy fight. Um, One magazine described it as like a scene out of the movie Wall Street. Um, Pelt stood up, made a big speech. Then the vote came in saying that the board had been re-elected in full, so he hadn't got his uh, nominees on the board. Then the company's CEO stood up and gave a speech of her own, which was greeted by a standing ovation but by only half of the audience. So you could very clearly see the split in the uh, shareholder base there. This brings to an end a four-month, very public proxy fight. Peltz was on the TV a lot, using newspaper ads. He even set up a Twitter account to support the campaign. Whether it ends Peltz's broader two-year campaign pushing for changes at DuPont remains to be seen. So what kind of lessons can companies learn from this interesting proxy fight? Uh, Well, there are a couple of points to make. Um, First of all, there's been a lot of talk following the vote about how it was the index funds what won it, to borrow a phrase from UK elections. I haven't seen the data uh, broken down myself, but a number of media outlets have said passive funds brought in a lot of support for management, and therefore the company needs to go out and talk to its active institutions and get them on side. Now, from DuPont's perspective, this is true. It was supported by the index funds, But there's also been this assumption that passive funds naturally, um, sort of automatically will support management. It's important to remember that actually, so-called passive investors aren't passive when it comes to governance matters. And wasn't there something earlier in the year, um, BlackRock and Vanguard made kind of similar statements about this earlier in the year, from what I remember? Yes, uh, both Vanguard and BlackRock uh, came out earlier this year and pointed this out, that they are going to be um, active when it comes to governance Uh, BlackRock reiterated its focus on particular governance areas, such as uh, long board tenure and also poor board attendance. Uh, Vanguard, meanwhile, revisited the idea of setting up shareholder liaison committees, and it did that by sending a letter to its largest holdings. The chairman of Vanguard explicitly said in this letter, don't assume we are passive about governance. People are mistaken about this. I actually spoke to somebody from Vanguard when they, around the time that they issued that letter and asked them if they knew of any companies that had taken the initiative to set up um, one, of the, one of these shareholder liaison committees. And they, they asked me if I could let them know if I came, came across anybody. <laughs> um, so it doesn't seem to be something that's been widely adopted yet. But um, I mean, in your opinion, Tim, what, what could companies do to better engage with these institutions? A lot of companies uh, nowadays go on governance roadshows out of proxy season um, to meet with their largest uh, holders. And they'll do this with passive investors or the so-called passive investors, as well as more active ones. For example, I spoke with a rider system recently and the um, head of IR there, Robert Brunn, told me that along with the general counsel, the CEO and the lead independent director, they all go out um, outside of proxy season and, and meet these guys and engage very actively with um, these big uh, index funds and passive investors. 
So basically, companies shouldn't assume that just because a, a fund is, is passive in terms of how it makes buying and selling decisions, that it will also automatically support management when it comes to votes. That's absolutely not the case. And companies need to make the same kind of effort in terms of engaging over governance with those investors as they do with all of their sort of large, large holders. And where does Peltz go on from here? Has he got other, other companies in his sights? Well, um, I'm sure he does. What, one other point to make is that while his campaign in this case, and as usual, was very public, um, you know, there was a lot going back and forth in the media, he actually feels like he didn't get his message across well enough. Um, he says he, he felt like he was being painted as a corporate raider by DuPont. And so when he comes to future proxy fights, he's actually going to be pushing his message publicly even more. So companies who, um, who, who find him on their shareholder base can, can expect even more uh, TV interviews, even more newspaper ads and you know, even more activity on social media. I mean, if he ever wants a stint on the Ticker podcast, I'm sure we could find room for him to have a little five-minute soapbox at the end. I think that might make a, a yeah, we could have a, a Nelson Pelt special edition. That'd be great. <laughs> Nelson Pelt's weekly. Um, well, until Nelson Pelt shows up, we, uh, we won't be having any activist investors on. But um, thanks again, you three, for um, our discussion this week. Um, as always, you can check out the latest stories on irmagazine.com. We'll be writing plenty in the week up there. Um, you can also subscribe to the Ticker podcast. Please do if you enjoyed it. We're both on iTunes and a number of other podcasting services. And you can download our app as well on the iTunes store or on the um, Google Play store as well, I believe. Um, but thanks very much, you three. Um, have a good week. Thank you. Cheers, Louis. Merci, merci. And we'll be back next week with a European Think Tank special. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.